listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm Mike Gaston. I am your host. This is episode number 91. We're coming up on episode 100. Imagine that. We're going to triple digits any day now. This is episode number 91. It is August 1st of 2021. And today, it is my pleasure to be behind the microphone uh, making this recording because I've got something that I'd like to talk about that I'm kind of really fascinated by. And I, I think at this stage, I don't even think I've unpacked it completely. But I want to share this with you to kind of get your thinking going. This is going to be a theme or a topic that we're going to revisit probably more than once here on The Currency. Now, I hope for you as you're listening to this that you're doing well. I'm sitting here in Somerville, South Carolina, just about 30 minutes north of Charleston. We're waiting for our house to close we got about six weeks to go until we move in. I'm sitting here, the sun is shining. It's about 90 degrees outside. I've got a little gin and tonic, little gin and tonic in my hand here uh, to keep me refreshed as we go through this episode. And I hope you're doing great. Take a few minutes, this shouldn't be a long episode, but take a few minutes, kick back, and join me for the adventure, the adventure that is the currency. Now, one of the things with the currency, and the reason I named it the currency, I've talked about this before, is that I believe that ideas have have currency, that ideas flow, that they move, that they have value, and that they that they are a sort of wealth. And so I named this the currency, meaning, yeah, I want to tackle ideas, and these ideas are valuable and wealthy, and we want them to move around, and we want to identify the ideas that are moving around and just be more insightful about the world we live in. And I read an article recently written by a guy named Tanner Greer. It's on his uh, blog or website. The website's called The Scholar's Stage. Uh, Tanner's been a teacher. He's uh, a journalist, an essayist. Looks like he's a bit of a thinker, academic, um, maybe does a little bit of consulting here and there, et cetera. Interesting guy. I don't know, really know much about him. I know he, he's contributed to like foreign affairs. He's contributed to the American conservative. So I think he's kind of, you know, a, a professional writer. Let's, let's just leave it at that. This article came to my attention actually through listening to the General Elect- Eclectic, General Eclectic podcast, which is a podcast with Rod Dreher and uh, Kale Zeldin. Uh, Kale's kind of the host and Rod's kind of the the main guy, although they, they really share the time equally. It's not just uh, Kale asking Rod. They kind of, you know, work off of each other. Good podcast. I, I you know, I'm, I've been a fan of Dreher on a certain level. I, I, there's certain things about Rod Dreher, and Rod, if you're listening, forgive me, certain things I'm not like 100% on with. I mean, n- not that I disagree with him, but sometimes... He, he comes out with a very reasonable position, even when there are unreasonable circumstances, meaning his latest book, uh, Live Not By Lies, you know, he's talking about this coming totalitarianism and he keeps saying, well, it's a soft totalitarianism. It's not like the same as, uh, you know, that they experienced in, in the Soviet Union, et cetera. But we need to look at the Soviet Union. What did they do and how can we prepare? And the uh, same in his Benedict option or Benedictine option or Benedict option. I don't remember the name of the book, but often a very kind of conservative, and I don't mean conservative politically, but like kind of holding back a little bit. Let's take a reasonable, measured, kind of inward-facing approach. Let's create little groups. Let's insulate ourselves as best we can. Let's make little, um, you know, contingencies of people that we can trust and quiet underground. That's fine. I don't think that those are illegitimate thoughts or illegitimate things to do, but I think sometimes there's a stage where you've got to be willing to go all in. You have to be a bit more heroic. And I do think that the Dreher is heroic and that he wants people to live the truth regardless of the consequences. I don't think he's saying, 
you know, capitulate. I don't think he's saying, uh, you know, just buy in so you can get along. He's not saying that, but, it, but, but his kind of posturing sometimes a little, a little less masculine than I'd like. And so Rod, if you're listening, I'm not accusing you of being <laughs> emasculated. It's just for me, I want to see something a little bit more muscular. I want to see something a little bit more with more agency to it. I, 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 I am skeptical and cynical about where we're at right now. Uh, I don't have high hopes for winning the day easily. I'm kind of a realist when it comes to where we're at and what's probably going to have to happen to get through to the other side. But that said, I want something a little bit more muscular. Okay. So I was listening to Rod and Kale on the General Eclectic Podcast, and they were talking about this article. So I looked it up and I thought, wow, this article is really something. So the article is called Culture Wars Are Long Wars, written again by Tanner Greer. And uh, he makes a handful of kind of points. Uh, the, The main kind of point that he's talking about is that the, the Republicans and the right, the conservatives, let's just kind of paint with a broad brush, but we'll just say the right, they're losing the culture war, but they never were really fighting the culture war. They were not fighting a culture war or the culture war. They were really fighting a political war and that they would use the culture to drive their political war. And what he means by this is they were not focused on seizing kind of the high ground of culture or even the low culture or even pop culture. They were more interested in seizing things like the judiciary, the executive branch, Congress, lawmaking, uh, justice systems, you know, the uphold, upholding of the Constitution, the protection of, um, you know, historical laws in the U.S. that would have, you know, provided for a more traditional way of life in this country. Now, they would use the culture to scare people or to motivate people, their base or whatever, to kind of activate and get more politically involved, to support efforts, to donate money and so on. But that's a political war. And up to a certain point, they were successful. They did have the majority of the country uh, back in the 70s and 80s. The majority of the country was still relatively conservative. Uh, there were a lot of pro- pro- progressives and so on, but people, you know, promoting things like homosexuality, people promoting things like uh, polygamy, people promoting things like socialism, communism, and so on were considered, uh, you know, the fringe. These were the fringe. These were not the everyday normal people. The the transgender cross-dressing freaks were not doing story time for five-year-old children in the libraries back in the 70s and 80s. The uh, conservatives and traditionalists did kind of run the show for the most part. Now, what Tanner argues is that because of that, the left was doing a really good job running the culture war. And we see ourselves today in a place where the right has lost the culture. We do not have the culture. And because we do not have the culture, we do not have the society. And he talks a little bit about why. Now, he gets into things like Hayek and some of his thinking, and he unpacks some other thinkers that have looked at, at how to capture the, we'll call it the, the intellectual high ground or these various institutions. You've probably heard me and other people talk about uh, critical theorists in the Frankfurt School and their long march through the institutions, if you look at things like um, entertainment, uh, news media, education systems, family, all these things have witnessed this long march through the institutions where the progressives have been able to take these things over. You've got school systems all over the U.S. pushing critical race theory 
And you might hear that and go, well, yeah, Mike, well, we need to make things right because of social justice. But, but if you're saying that, you really don't even know what critical race theory is. Critical race theory is not just some uh, effort to make things equitable, equitable between the races. This is a redefinition of races. This is a redefinition of what it means to be a human being in a society along the lines of race. It's actually pitting people against each other and it's picking who will be the winners and who will be the losers. Whereas you and I may have grown up and subsequent or previous generations rather would have grown up under this idea that we want to make race a non-issue. I don't want to see your skin color. I want to see the content of your character. I want to judge you based on who you are and in the values that you hold and the, and the work that you're doing and the family that you're creating and the wealth and so on. I want to look at you based on the content of your character and the content of your life. Even if you're struggling and downtrodden, if you're a person of good moral character and trying to get ahead in life or get yourself out of the situation, I'll respect you. I'll help you. I don't care what your skin color is, white, black, blue, doesn't matter. That's not what critical race theory is teaching. It is identity, uh, 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 identity politics. It's ideological Marxism. And so uh, we find ourselves in the situation where the left has taken over the culture. And so uh, Greer is arguing that, hey, the right lost it because the right has lost the culture war. It did not focus on the culture war. Now, I don't want to get too deep into this. I mean, you'll hear this and go, okay, that's not such a big deal, Uh I mean, we've heard about the culture war. Uh, it doesn't sound like a big surprise to me. Uh, why is this newsworthy? Why is this something that you say you want to talk about and, and that we're going to revisit it over, over time? So here's the interesting piece to this that I, that I had not heard anyone say before. So intuitively, I've been arguing and, and putting kind of my effort behind more of the culture war position. You know, I've looked at like organizations that I've been involved in, you know, we're often focused on, you know, political power, like, hey, this thing's happening, we've got to fight this political battle. And if we if we fight back the liberals in the legislature, if we fight back the liberals in the courts and so on, you know, that saves the day. And that's been the focus. We need your money. We need your time, your, your talent. We need you to throw yourself behind this to help us overcome this political battle. And I'm not one to say, forget the political battle. We need it. We need to be successful in the political battle. But that said, uh, it's there's almost a blindness to the bigger piece, which is the culture. How do you win the hearts and minds of people? If I'm making laws that defend my way of thinking, my way of wanting to live, my way that I believe that society should be ordered... And I'm not at the same time winning over the people that these laws will impact, these, the people that will have to live under these laws. I'm missing the big picture here because ultimately the laws in a land will be a reflection of the values of the people. And as those values change, the laws change. This is why we see our country changing its laws. Now, there are people in this country who go, yeah, but the Constitution says, the Constitution says, and I agree with that. You're supposed to be, uh, some of your rights, the, all your rights that are in the Constitution are supposed to be sacrosanct. They're supposed to be defended. The one thing that you're not thinking about, if that's what you're focused on, is they can change the Constitution. They can eliminate the Constitution. There's already 
wide discussion about this constitution in the progressive world. Why do we need it? There are other countries that don't have a constitution. Maybe it's change, It's time to change the constitution. This should be a living document. Why should some uh, old white men in powdered wigs from two, three hundred years ago decide how we structure our society? What the hell do they know about us and me and my needs? And so as we've focused on the political battle, on the legal battles, I think we've been missing the point that we need to be winning the culture war. We need to be winning the hearts and minds of people <laughs> with shock and awe. <laughs> winning hearts and minds with shock and awe. That's, that's the new tagline for the podcast, by the way. <laughs> I like that. Winning hearts and minds through shock and awe. We need to, we have needed to have been focused on winning hearts and minds. And we really haven't been, we haven't been. Now it's hard as a conservative and as a right-leaning person to do that often uh, from a more moralistic, ethical, and even theological standpoint, because people's nature, human nature, as you know, the Christian church teaches is flawed. We tend towards the flaw. We aspire to greatness. We aspire to beauty. We aspire to purity and, and, and the sublime. There's something in us that does resonate with that, and we desire it. We aspire to it. Uh, it, it shows up in our music, in our art, in our, in our dining, our culture. Like it, We're all these things where we want to create beauty of some sort, and we want fulfillment in our living, but our behaviors often uh, scuttle that. Like We work against ourselves. Our behaviors go towards the sordid. Our behaviors go towards the carnal, the base, the the dirty, the tawdry. That's there's just something about the human condition <laughs> where we struggle with this. And so, when you're preaching a message of asceticism, when you're preaching a message of of discipline or self denial or laying your life down for others, the virtues that you would have seen in the ancient classical cultures where you lay your life down for your family, your city, your state, you lay your life down for your tribe, you, you, are, you embrace uh, pain and suffering and, and, and hardship as a way to become stronger, to, be, to prove yourself, to know what you're made of as, as a man or a woman. When you, when you grow up in those cultures, that's kind of indoctrinated into you and you embrace those things. It's modeled for you, it's expected of you, and you're proud to take part in those things. But when you're in a culture that's very consumeristic, when you're in a culture that's really about pleasure and comfort, uh, you know, the conservatives got a very um, unattractive message. Now, I will say, you know, what we saw under the Obama administration this kind of pro pro proliferation uh, of jihadist, uh, you know, mujahideen, like this, this warfare uh, society of ISIS and these other splinter groups, Taliban and so on. They were causing a lot of problem for the world, but a lot of Western kids were flocking to this. We, you know, they were catching kids from Great Britain, from Australia, from the U.S. that had joined these jihadis. And you would see it in U.S. culture, too. There were even uh, kids that had come here, maybe second, third generation uh, families that were from uh, the Near East. They were Middle Eastern. They were uh, maybe Muslim culturally, but secular. 
and they were despondent about life and they embraced this jihadi ideology because it was a way for them to find deeper meaning. Not not good, by the way. I'm not advocating for that, but just to say you, you will find as a culture becomes more corrupt, more bankrupt, more uh, hollowed out of its values, you will have individuals looking for something to fulfill them. And so these radical... Uh, opportunities provide that. These are kids that, you know, have eschewed working. These are kids that have eschewed marriage or f- or raising children or, you know, investing themselves. Either they've eschewed it or they've struggled to find it in this progressive world that we've created, this secularized, consumeristic, pleasure and comfort oriented world. Uh, they can't find fulfillment. And so then they go to something really extreme. So I'm, I'm kind of wandering all over the place, but the point being, I think the conservative has had a hard time in the culture war because they do not have or have not made a compelling case for, for the benefits of, con, of conservatism, of, of right thinking. And, and that, I don't mean that more like uh, maximizing utility, like you got to give them a cost benefit ratio, but we haven't given people something that resonates with them where they're like, I want that. I'm hungry for that. I need that in my life. That's, I want to aspire to that beauty. I don't think that it has to be a cost benefit where it's like, look, uh, you know, we can help you lose weight the easy way. You don't never have to be hungry. Uh, you're just going to go on this paleo diet, eat all the steaks you want, and you're going to look like a Greek God. I don't think we have to offer like no pain and all the gain. I don't think we have to overcome how easy it is to, to hit the baseline uh, where a lot of people are living. But I think we have to give them a vision of something beautiful and great and virtuous and fulfilling and sublime, something that, that, that resonates and echoes the transcendent. And I don't think the right's been able to do that. A lot of folks on the right don't even have a vision of a transcendent world. And so all they're doing is arguing for lower taxes and personal liberty. And those are fine things. But again, that just comes off as you're no different than the other guy. You just want your stuff and you want to be left alone. And and that's fine. You have that right in America, at least you used to, not so much anymore. But you've not given people a vision of why they would want what you're selling. And so what was interesting about the Greer article is this concept of, of, slowly and then suddenly, slowly, then suddenly. And what is that? We've been watching a slow decline over decades, 30, 40, 50 uh, years, uh, three, four, five decades of the American kind of traditional way of living. Now, some people argue, oh, that never existed. That whole leave it to beaver stuff is BS. It never existed. I'm not here to argue that the historical um, accuracy of all that, but there was a traditional way of living in America. There was a traditional way of living for human beings in the West. Uh, growing up, respecting your elders, waiting your turn, you know, getting married, getting, you know, working for a living, take, you know, having a family, this kind of domesticated bliss, if you will. It was never always, it wasn't always bliss for everybody, but this idea that you kind of followed in the footsteps of previous generations and you did what you had to do, whether it was farming, whether it was fight a, a war, uh, whether it was make it through a stock crash or, or some type of uh, famine, you did what you had to do to get through. You, you could count on your community, you could count on your family, you could count on um, your upbringing and your morals and so on, and you could get through. Call those fake, call those real. Uh, it's probably somewhere in between the two, not important to argue. But, but here we are decades later, and that's just been blown apart. And you have this kind of 
slow, gradual, this gradually then suddenly dynamic. And what is that? What you're seeing is this gradual decline. And what Greer is kind of prophesying, and I think we can all see it. I don't think this is going to be a shocker. There's going to be a sudden change. And I think we're all sitting here and the tension of the sudden change is coming. We can feel this, the, the, this, the coil, the spring is tensed. It's got all this energy in it and it's going to pop at some point. And we're all kind of cringing. We've got, we've got this, you know, I'm going to just say it and I don't care if you voted for him or not. We have this really old guy whose faculties are not all there. They're just not all there physically. Just watch how he physically moves. His body is not all there. And I would argue his mind isn't either. But this isn't picking on Biden. I'm not blaming Biden for what's going on. This is the spring about, this is the coil about to spring. You've got all this tension, BLM, critical theory. You've got racial issues. You've got economic injustices. You've got globalism happening. You've got giant corporations. You've got corporatism where they're working with the government to enact policies to get favorable positions. You've got small businesses being squeezed out. You have people being told that they are an oppressor just because they were born with a skin color. And you have other people being told you're a victim just because of your skin color. You have children that are confused about their sexuality because they're being told you can be whatever you want and on and on and on. We are, we, we are just sitting kind of on the precipice, if you will, of this coil. And I think we can kind of feel it. And when I bring up Biden, it's not to blame him, but to say politically, we're kind of on the precipice of a big change. And I think everybody feels it. At some point, the federal government's going to come down hard. They're already testing the waters with things like mandatory vaccinations. They're, they're making noise about that. They're making noise about Second Amendment rights. There's, there's already activity around your First Amendment right to say what you like. All this stuff is starting to happen. You see the federal government in bed with one of the largest social media platforms. Oh, it's a private company, Mike. Facebook can do whatever it wants. It's a private company. You know, if you're going to behave a certain way in their shop, well, they have the right to ask you to leave. But then you've got them coordinating with the federal government, the federal government telling them, here's what we want you to do. Here's what we want you to take down. Let us know what you see over there. I mean, this is like Venezuela, where you've got this, this communist dictator that owns all the media companies. That's what you're seeing. So we're sitting at this moment where there's about to be a sudden change. And Greer argues that we've missed a certain dynamic. And this is the piece right here that I want to share with you that I think is fascinating. He believes that it's a cohort change. It's a generational change. And what he means by that is, it, you know, when you, when you have an idea, you go, hey, I, I think that uh, I think communism's the, the bee's knees. I think everybody should be a communist. You run around in 1980 saying that, and most people, unless you're at some, you know, PhD get together at some exclusive, uh, you know, blue blood event, yes, yes, you know, where it's fashionable to be a socialist. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I knew Che. Yes, we vacationed with him and his family back in '62. It's a shame what happened to him. Uh, you know, but in 1980 something, you know, you run around saying that no one's going to agree with you. No matter how much you argue, you're not even going to convince a lot of people to join you. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to convince them. But what happens is not that you are able to convince enough people. And then there's a, there's a kind of a tipping point a la, uh, Maxwell, um, or whatever his name was it. Gladwell, glad what's that? Gladstone. What? What's the, who's the guy that wrote the tipping point? I can see his face. I've I'm mixed, mixed up on his name. Uh, I think it's something Gladwell. 
It's not a tipping point moment that you've convinced enough people and it flips. What it is, is it's generational. And one of the examples that he uses uh, is, is the, the Democrat Party. Right now, if you look at the Democrat Party, the old guard, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world, the old guard Democrats are your classic liberals. They're progressive, but they don't want to break anything. You know, they, they want abortion. They want, you know, all the, they want to take as much tax money as they can get, but they don't want to break anything because it's a good gig. Like this works well for them. We don't want to ruin quote unquote democracy. We're not trying to break America. We just want to beat down the right and keep control. We want a lot of like, oh, we we love you policies out there. We want to throw a lot of money around and we want to keep uh, people on the plantation. Essentially, we want to keep these. We want to open up the borders so we can get those votes from those people coming across the border. You know, we, we want to destabilize and, and devalue the votes of the, the kind of the blue collar or the right wing white people. So let's flood it with all kinds of brown people from across the border. They do those things. They've been doing those things and arguing for them for a long time. But they don't want to break the system. They want to tax it. They don't want to break it. And then you've got the squad. You've got the Ilhan Omars. You've got the AOCs and some of these other nut jobs. And these are just avowed hate mongers and socialists. Now, these people 20, 30, 50 years ago would have never gotten into office. Never. But there's something interesting about them. Look at what generation they are. They're a younger generation. And this is this kind of cohort generational thing. And so what you've got is once the Nancy Pelosi's start dying off and, you know, if you look at the age of Nancy and her folks like uh, Schumer and Biden and so on, these, these people aren't going to be around forever. Over the next 10 years, they're either going to be retiring or dying. And as they, as they are out of the picture, as their influence uh, wanes, they will no longer decide what the Democrat Party is. And it is the people, this younger generation of socialists that are going to pop up and go, well, now the Democrat Party is an avowed socialist party. So you have this kind of gradual change where an AOC gets elected into office. You go, how did that ever happen? Golly, that, you know, and you think of it as almost a fluke. But what's what you're seeing is the initial kind of the first signs of this next generation's uh influence on society and on politics. Another example of this is America is soon to be a godless country because you've got the baby boomer generation. You know, you look at religious, they do studies, relatively religious. Uh, you look at the Gen Xers, their actual religiosities come up a little bit over time, uh, a little bit below the, the baby boomers. And then the millennials just drop off. The, really, the children of the boomers and, and the older uh, Gen Xers like me and then the Gen, is it Gen Y or Gen Z? I don't know what the next one after millennial, they just fall off the map. They're just not religious. And what you're seeing is parents have not been able to successfully transfer their faith to their children. So baby boomers and Gen Xers have struggled to, they either haven't tried or they've struggled. I don't, I don't know which it is. I'm not in everybody's house, but I know the world we live in. I have some millennial children. Uh, I know the world we live in is a difficult world. And I think it's a difficult world to hold your faith in, especially for a young person growing up kind of saturated in, in the, the values, the pop culture and so on. So where I'm going with this is to say, what you see generationally, if you do, if you look at the, the 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 data, is that you know relatively religious. It's not like the boomers are just sliding off and the, and Gen Xs are sliding off. It's that they've been pretty steady, if not increasing, in their faith. 
And yet at the same time, their children have, have almost started with no faith. It's like they just did not adopt what their parents taught them. And so you've got this drop off. So as the baby boomers are dying off or out of the picture, and as the Gen Xers are right behind them, and Gen X is not a very big cohort, so they're not going to have that big of an influence on society anyway. So as the baby boomers are off the stage and the millennials take the stage, you're going to see the country, and you're seeing it already, become quite godless, quite secular. It's happening before our eyes. So you get this. So we think that every generation changes a little bit, but there are certain things that just don't carry from generation to generation. And that's what we're seeing here. It's this gradually, meaning, yep, things are kind of growing a little colder, a little bit more secular, a little bit more godless. And then you hit the next cohort who never accepted it in the first place. And it's just over. It's just over. And I think Greer has identified a very interesting dynamic that this is not going to be a gradual, slow slide into the abyss that we are facing. He doesn't say it this way, but we are facing a, a soon to happen fall off a cliff. As the boomers and the Xers are pushed off the stage, whether they fall off because they drop dead or they just lose power because they are not a big enough cohort anymore to keep it. And the boomers won't let go. I mean, the, the, the millennials are going to wrest it from their hands. And the boomers are like, you can pry it from my cold dead hands for all I care because I'm not letting go. I mean, you know, Trump, <laughs> Biden, Clinton, Schumer, Pelosi. I mean, all these power players, Lindsey Graham. I mean, these are all boomers. They will not get off the stage. And yet at some point, they're going to be forced off the stage, whether through health, lack of life, uh, or just not enough strength to push back against the coming tide of the millennials and the subsequent generations. So the question becomes, what do we do about this? I mean, if this is true, if this is a real thing, if the right has been so focused on fighting a political fight, and yet at the same time, the earth underneath the right has been deteriorating at such a pace and is about to just drop out from underneath them with this change, this cohort, this generational change, what do we do? I'm not one to say that we should stop the political legal battles. I don't think that you can do that. I don't think you can just say, well, forget that. Let's just focus on this over here. I think you kind of have to be like, uh, it's like the old Bible story when they're rebuilding Jerusalem. I want to say, was that in the book of um, Nehemiah? Gosh, when they were building the walls of, of Jerusalem, the prophet told them, you got to have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, because they knew they could be attacked at any moment. And so on one hand, they had to be ready for battle. So they had to have their sword with them. But at the same time, they had to build that wall because until they were attacked, the more work they could do to get that wall sorted out, the better. And so the, the kind of metaphor was a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, a masonry trowel. And I think that's kind of what we've got to look at right now. I don't, I don't think, you know, what we're seeing right now in what passes for right-wing media, right-wing thinking, right-wing entertainment, this isn't useful uh, nothing against these people, but Ben Shapiro, you know, owning the libs with his his brilliant machine gun mind is not winning hearts and minds. I mean, it might be to some degree, but this is just red meat. You know, a lot of the right wing like Fox News or some of these right wing, 
you know, media platforms, let's say, just to just to to destroy the the liberals, to pillory the liberals, to mock them, to outrage everybody over the the latest um, you know stupid thing or outrageous thing that they've done. I I don't see that winning. I'm not saying stop doing that, but but you know the thing is those are the things that are the most primary. Those are the things that are most forefront. Those are the things that we love to consume. And I think that the trick is going to be, and I don't think this is an easy one, how do you win hearts and minds? And you can't just win hearts and minds of your neighbor. You're not trying to just win hearts and minds of your own cohort. That's fine. You can try that. Uh, you know, Greer says you've got to win the hearts and the minds of the unborn. How do you win those generations that are coming up? Can we keep things alive long enough and can we win those hearts and minds of the coming generations? And can we keep the spark, the flame alive for that generation to come and to, and to, and to, and have a sudden change back? Because we're going to have a sudden change towards darkness. There's no way around it. You're not going to stop this. You can't stop a whole generation taking over saying, we don't believe in God. We want socialism. Capitalism sucks. We want social justice. And, uh, you know, Republicans, right-leaning people, evil, uh, like fill in the blank. We want, you know, free um, sex changes. We want transgenderism. We want to celebrate every freaking thing under the sun that's nuts. You have a generation, they're not going to change, you know, the leopard is not going to change its spots. These, these kids, the way that they've been brought up, the things that they embrace, they're not likely as a generation, as a cohort, going to let go of these things. They might be tempered a little bit. They might find themselves to, to say, well, this I'm older now. This didn't lead to happiness. But often people don't repent of their bad ideas. You find a person, I've known these people, like some guy in his 50s that's miserable, super talented artist, but he's miserable because the world is unfair and it should he should be treated better. And look, his life hasn't gone very well. And, you know, his family's a little messed up and his finances aren't that great, but he's angry at the world, but he refuses to look at his own ideologies and his own behaviors and his own value systems and sets to say, you know, maybe some of my ideas on free love, maybe some of my ideas on... Um, how important, you know, liberalism and progressivism is, progressivism is and like my political positions and the way that I raised my family or the way that I treated my wife and my marriage, maybe those things are to blame. People don't do that. Even when our life is a shambles around us, we often will look somewhere else and go, well, whose fault is this? It's got to be somebody else. And so my, why I'm saying this is I don't think this generation is necessarily going to change. I don't think that the millennials and the Gen X, or sorry, Gen Y, Gen Z, I don't think they're going to change. They're going to take over and they're going to implement what they think is right. I mean, look at the boomers. They sit there with like they're a bunch of, like they're still over at Woodstock. Like that was the best thing that ever happened. Yet they're all sitting in half million dollar homes with, you know, German cars and second homes on the lake, taking all kinds of vacations. They got 401ks out the wazoo. These people are wealthy. And yet they're the free love, let's go to the concert hippie kids. In their minds, that's the value set. So they're so big on, you know, people need to have freedom, man, and people should be able to still smoke pot and, you know, like all this stuff, it's like grow up already. So if you look at their life, it's a very materially focused, very success oriented life from a material perspective, but they're acting like they're still this free love hippie. And they don't see how these things don't work together because, um, it can't be me. That would create cognitive dissonance. They can't look in the mirror and go, wait a minute, I'm a walking, talking contradiction. I'm out of integrity with my own beliefs. 
they're so, you know, I, I was talking to this, <laughs> this person, liberal person, progressive person, you know, in her, in her early 60s, very educated, uh, you know, has been very successful, lived a very rich and broad life. She's infuriated that there are people here, impoverished people in this region that we're living in in South Carolina that have no air conditioning. And well, she should be because without air conditioning, you'd, you'd want to die here. I mean, it's hot and humid, hot and humid all the time. She's infuriated by that, but this person's living in a, a million dollar plus home, has you know everything you could ever want in life, and she had hardships as a human being, lived a human life. So I'm not trying to say like everything's perfect, but the point being, there's there doesn't seem to be an awareness of how ironic, uh, you know, that the, the person that's doing the best is the one that's angry about uh, how how other people are not caring enough about people with no air conditioning. I don't see this person running around handing out, you know, saying, hey, I bought a bunch of air conditioners and I'm just going to deliver them to people. Uh, now, now, maybe she does. I don't, who knows. But um, it's rare that we look at ourselves and say, I'm out of integrity. I lack uh, intellectual uh, cohesiveness or rationality. We are irrational beings and we cobble together rationales to justify things. And so I think the challenge for us, uh, us being people that want to see a whole and healthy society, people that can be fulfilled, people that want to see society ordered along the lines of truth. I think for us, the challenge is how do we begin to capture the hearts and minds of the generations coming up? I think the millennials are lost. It's a lost generation. I don't know. There's much that you can do there. You can try. I think you can push legislatively to try to, you know, you can do this kind of rear guard action where you're trying to limit the damage and protect the flank and keep everybody alive so it's not a complete rout. But at the same time, you have to be winning the future generations or this game is over. Now, the one thing that will work in our favor is that most generations are frustrated with their parents. And as the millennials, although they don't have many of them, but as they start having children, and as they start raising their kids and as the Gen X or Gen Z and Gen Ys or whatever they are, I've got to, I should know this. I don't know why I don't remember it. As they're having their kids, their kids are going to look at them and go, I don't like your values. Oh, you're a mess. You're taking pills. You're going to therapy all the time. You're whining about this and that. I don't want to be like you. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to go get a square job. I'm going to work hard. I want to be materially successful. I'm not going to whine like you do. Oh, socialism. I think that sucks. I'm, I'm going to be rebellious and, and be a free market guy. <laughs> You know, it's like, because what happens is whatever becomes widespread, whatever becomes the law, whatever becomes uh, commonplace, that becomes the establishment. And so, you know, millennials are going to find themselves as the establishment and our hope and what we should be planning and working towards is how do we turn their children? It sounds evil, doesn't it? How do we turn their children to goodness, to truth, to righteousness, to holiness, to the transcendent, to beauty? To, to human flourishing, because I can tell you right now, the millennial generation, the AOCs of the world, they do not have an answer that leads to human flourishing. History has proven that out, and truth uh, stands in judgment against that. So guys, I hope this is thought compelling. I'm going to put a link in the show notes on my website. Just go to MikeGaston.com forward slash the currency 091. MikeGaston.com forward slash the currency 091. I'll put a link to this article in the show notes. You can read it yourself. Very well written, uh, easy to take. I don't think that uh, Greer's got it all figured out, but I think it's an interesting perspective, one worth your time and one worth continued discussion 
how do we respond to this and what do we do and how do we preserve uh, a way of life that will allow our grandchildren and our, our children's children and so on to flourish in the future. We owe that to future generations to fight for them and to give them the space to be human beings and to be fulfilled. Guys, I love you and I will catch you in the next episode. Thank you.